How important is culture? What value does it add to our sense of who we are and where we fit, and what elements comprise it? The task of defining what culture is, when you stop to think about it, is actually pretty hard, because culture encompasses so much. It's our laws, our customs, and our artwork. It's also all the ways of honoring ancestral legacies, family histories, ethnic origins, and more. And in addition to the past, it can be a source of newness arising out of our current conditions and connections. Malcolm X once said, culture is an indispensable weapon in the freedom struggle. We must take hold of it and forge the future with the past. Which brings up the question, what do we do when our cultural legacies and the cultures to which we are exposed throughout our lifetimes are complex, multi-layered, and can even at times seem to conflict with each other? I'm Malcolm Burnley, and I'm biracial, black and white, Polish on my mom's side and African-American on my dad's, although we don't know exactly where from because that history was lost during their enslavement. For me, embracing the cultures of my family and my ancestors has meant finding a way to reconcile the reality that, within myself, I'm part of one race that has a legacy of oppressing my ancestors on the other. I relate. I'm Darylise Lyons, and I'm Black and white biracial as well. My mother is Irish, Italian, and English, and my dad's people are from Ghana, Nigeria, Cameroon, and the Ivory Coast. At the same time, my culture has shaped so much of who I am in positive ways. In my particular experience, I feel like I would struggle to hold all of my identities simultaneously if I felt pressure to choose sides along the Black-White racial divide. My cultural roots are the source of many of my most vivid memories. Mine too, such as eating pierogies and kielbasa during the holidays with my parents and brother, while listening to Thelonious Monk and Miles Davis. Another memory is my mom celebrating the anniversary of the Loving Decision almost every year. That's the 1967 Supreme Court case that legalized interracial marriage. Darylise, what are some of your memories? Oh my gosh, I have thousands. But the two I'm thinking of right now are family lasagna nights and bringing Mandazi to my elementary school's cultural cuisine day. And really just the joy of being able to bring that part of my culture to my classmates. Actually, many of my childhood memories center around food. You're not alone in that, Darylise. Many of the young people we spoke with had a lot to say about culture and cuisine. How'd you spend the holiday? Uh, Thanksgiving? Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. We had like a whole buffet of food. <laughs> Who's we? Uh, my mom, my dad, my brother... And my dad's mom, my grandma. Mm. We actually didn't go over there for Thanksgiving this year because we didn't want to feel a different way. If we went over there, we wouldn't feel how we felt here at the house. We um, actually had seafood, and we we probably wouldn't. We had so much fun. I knew ice cream cake for my birthday. No way. What flavor ice cream cake? Rainbow. Do you all have family dinner a lot? What's your favorite thing to eat? Spaghetti. (laughs) Well, and I heard you were helping your mom make meatballs. So does that mean you're having spaghetti and meatballs tonight? Those were some of the voices of the multiracial youth ages 4 through 21 who agreed to be interviewed for this three-episode limited series sponsored by the National Association of Black Journalists, NABJ. 
Although, as you've likely deduced from the fact that the NABJ is our funding source for this limited series, and although Darylise and I both come from black and white ancestral origins, conversations about multiracial culture extend far beyond black and white and encompass all of the mixed race identities that people hold. As we move forward into podcast production of another season, Malcolm and I will be amplifying more identities, hearing from those of as many racial and ethnic backgrounds as possible. But please know that in this series as well, we have incorporated voices and stories that go beyond the Black-White binary. And by the way, for us Black-White biracial people, culture differs tremendously between various people and the places we occupy. To learn more about how those whose stories are shared here identify, be sure to check out the previous episode of the On Being Biracial podcast, in which we explored identity. Darylise, I think culture is inextricably connected to identity and informs the subject we'll be exploring in our next episode, Belonging. Yeah, from the moment we enter into this world, and even before that, we inherit all the prior moments that led to our existence, and all of that history shapes us. It labels us. Literally. I mean, I think about the culture that's contained in something like a name. You know that looks um, like I'm named after Zonia Austin. That was Zora, age four. She and her six-year-old sibling, Sam, sat down with me in their living room on a chilly Sunday morning in West Philadelphia. It was a few days before the start of Hanukkah when they were each anticipating the arrival of some multiracial dolls as presents. And Zora shared about how she was named after Zora Neale Hurston, the famous African-American author, anthropologist, and filmmaker. I love that Zora shared the story of her name, but I'd also like to share a longer excerpt from that same conversation with our listeners. It's one of my favorite moments, the moment when Sam and Zora went from being interviewed to interviewing you, Malcolm. And for the sake of clarity, listeners, you'll hear Sam and Zora's mom, Ariella, as well. What's your name? Malcolm. Have you heard that name before? No. Malcolm. You're going to learn probably the first Malcolm, if you don't meet another one after me. Probably learn in school eventually about this guy, Malcolm X, who was a civil rights leader. Uh Have you guys heard of, like, civil rights? Civil rights Mm -hmm. movement? You'll learn about it soon. That's at the park. The park that we go to is named for him. And Sam once, famously, there's a barrel of Malcolm X on the wall. She was like... It's in this, it's a picture of Daddy. Oh, that's so I'm, sweet. I'm that is so amazing. It looks that's like so Yeah, that is, yeah. that is, yeah. Did you, got, you know that looks um, like I'm named after Zoni Austin. I didn't know that for sure, but I kind of had, I kinda had a feeling that was going to be the case. Or it was the case. Why you um named after. So the guy at the park, who looks like your dad, huh? I was named after him. That was a sweet moment. Although I didn't think to ask it at the time, Sam's dad told me later that Sam named themselves. Sam was originally named after grandparents, but on the first day of summer camp a year ago, they said their name was Sam, and it's been Sam ever since. I appreciate their strong sense of themselves. I do as well. I also appreciated Sam and Zora's curiosity and their insights about themselves. In some ways, speaking with them felt like an invitation to revisit aspects of my childhood as I thought about my own experiences of race. That's one of the many things I found beautiful about this reporting process, along with all the touching and tender moments. 
like this moment between Zoe and Jackson Maynard, ages eight and 10, respectively, which happened at the very beginning of our interview. So I'd just like to get everyone to tell me their names and ages as we start. Ladies first. My name is Zoe and I'm eight years old. Love it. My name is Jackson and I am 10 years old. I thought it was incredibly endearing that throughout their joint interview, Zoe and Jackson were so polite to one another and considerate of each other's feelings. Also, after the interview, I reached out to their mom, Rocky, to ask about the origins of their names. And she said for Jackson, the family wanted a J initial after his dad, Jeff, and wanted a quote unquote stately name and that she finds his middle name Chase fitting because he's someone who chases his dreams. With Zoe, Rocky said she was so shocked she was pregnant that she declared no more babies. We need a Z name for the last letter of the alphabet. Then she added that Zoe is fitting because it means life and that Zoe's middle name, Ray, R-A-E, is the female version of her dad, Jeff's middle name, R-A-Y. Names can tell us something about a person's origin story and those first imprints of culture and identity. Darylise, listeners might be interested to hear about the origins of your name. Oh, sure. So my dad's name is Daryl and my mom's given name is Allison and they synthesized them to come up with Darylise, which I guess just shows that my name, like so many other things about me, is a combination of both my parents. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. (laughs) And although names can and often do have cultural significance, we also shape our own stories. Here's Layla Jacobs, age nine. Oh, I have a book about me. Tell me about it. It's called The Girl Who Lost Her Name, and she goes under her bed and and goes on a journey to find letters of her name. Wait, and so you said it's a book about you. How is it about you? Yes, it spells my name. Layla told me that it was her grandma on her mom's side who bought the name book for her. Then she informed me that she lives closer to her father's mother and sees that grandma more often, including on holidays. I'm curious, you said you spend Thanksgiving with your dad's mom. What's she like? She is very funny. She also braided my hair like yesterday. It's one of the braids. I love it. Yeah, it looks awesome. For me, my racial background added a complex layer to my relationships with my grandparents. I didn't grow up nearby any of them, although my white grandparents were a loving, if only occasional part of my life. On my dad's side, my grandfather, well, I never met him. And yet, so much of who I am, from my name to my skin color to, yes, my culture, came from him, despite his absence. I'm glad you shared that. You know, Malcolm, grandparents came up a lot in these interviews, and people had a wide range of experiences of them. And I'll just say that, considering that one of the greatest shaping influences on my childhood was my mother's father, my grandpa. I I related a lot to those children who did have their grandparents in their lives. So who takes you to school every day? Dia. Dia? Who's that? My grandma. Oh, is that your mom's mom or your dad's mom? Mommy's mom. Oh, does she pick you up too? Mm, No. Mommy. Yeah, so your Dia drops you off in the morning and then your mom picks you up after school? Yeah? Yeah? That was Mason Matheson, age five, soon to be six. 
His older sister, Reese, who turns 13 in January, elaborated. My dia, my, my mom's mom, she lives with us here. So um, we, we do see her every single day. So there's three generations in your house. Yeah. What's that like? It's definitely like I know a lot of my friends, um, like especially like Grandparents Day, I could see like that they their grandparents live too far for them even to be able to come. So it's really nice to be able to have my grandma and my mom and like in such close distance, being able to see her every day is very nice. Do you feel like it's led to any cultures or cultural or traditions like aspects that maybe other people might not have? Because I know with different generations, like you can, I don't know, sometimes there's different traditions that families preserve and pass down. Not that I can think of like off the top of my head. When she came, it was like I was so young that maybe if I experienced something different, I might be able to like tell. But it's just what I've like known for so long. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. I was going to say like some food. So she makes this amazing cake, German chocolate cake. And that is like I've asked her to make that so many times, almost every day. It's just so good. So that is um one thing like the food and being able to like spend time with her and stuff. Mm-hmm. But any like traditions other than like the cake, I don't think that I can like really think of it like like that. And we're back to food. But also to spending time, which, as you know, has demonstrated positive outcomes. Research shows significant benefits from intergenerational interactions. I'll read a few excerpts from an article put out by The Legacy Project. Quote, through grandparents, children have a better sense of who they are and where they come from. They have roots, a history, and a sense of continuity and perspective. And active, involved older adults with close intergenerational connections consistently report much less depression, better physical health, and higher degrees of life satisfaction. That article was very illuminating. We'll put a link in the show notes. My favorite quote from it is, It's the experience of life in a multi-generational, interdependent, richly complex community that more than anything else teaches us how to be human. Moving away from intergenerational culture and family interactions for a moment, let's talk about how the interactions between siblings shape mixed-race family culture and dynamics. Layla has a two-year-old brother who she loves and also who, according to her, is quote-unquote really annoying. What about your brother? I know you said he annoys you sometimes, but what would you want him to know when he, as he's growing up? I want him to know that he should be safe. He knows that his family is protecting him and stuff like that. Do you feel that way? Like safe and protected in your family? Mm-hmm. How do you know that you're safe and protected? What Can you give me some examples of things that have happened that you know that I'm safe and protected because sometimes I think that something's watching me, but something's not. So I tell my mom or my dad, and they just help me get over it. Being part of a safe, supportive family creates a culture that promotes sharing, and not everyone has that. In fact, some family dynamics can be incredibly threatening and have implications for how we see ourselves, our cultures, and our communities. Tucker, age eight, is currently safe at home with his mother and stepfather, whom he refers to as dad, and has restricted visitation with his biological father due to the culture of fear in his father's home. 
Tucker relayed how he felt when he met his stepdad and why he struggles with ambivalent feelings about the dad who is no longer with his mother anymore. Tucker's story exemplifies the complexity of not only a family that's racially mixed, but a blended family as well. So how did you feel when you knew that your mom had a boyfriend? Well, like they met when I was in summer break, but um, it was still um, first grade. And we, me and my mom went to Florida to see a friend. And when we called Stu, he was really sick. And I was like, are you guys going to be, I'm like, um, my mom was like kind of loving on him. And I was like, are you guys going to be girlfriend and boyfriend? And they were like, um, well, what what do you think? <laughs> and I think they said, yes, sure. Or, well, I don't really think they were girlfriend and boyfriend yet, but I think they're going to be. And I was like, um, I said, um, it's like, is he going to be my stepdad? And when I met him, I was like, he's my stepdad. I get to have a nicer dad, Aww. even though he's so nice. So you said you get to have a nicer dad. What do you mean by that? Well, like my dad, I want to say nicer yet, but my dad got really mad at my brother one time because it was um before my dad and Jamie, my stepmom, um broke up. I mean, it was after. Um, and in our new house, I still remember I saw him yesterday in our new house. We were watching church or football, probably church. And my dad asked Cameron a question of my brother. And he was like, okay, but my brother was giving my dad a look like this. And um, my dad said, if you don't stop looking at me like that, I'm gonna, um, you go, go upstairs in your room. And he kept doing it. But I want to blame my brother because... Um, my dad was right behind the sun, and it was shining to Cameron, but Cameron didn't do anything. And then when my dad got up really fast and, like, threw Cameron to the wall and then <clears throat> threw him upstairs and slammed the door and, like, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. And you said you still remember that. Does he do stuff like that to you, your dad? No, but he just kind of needs to be patient. That's what I think. Where do you learn patience from? Oh, I learn patience from, I don't know. Does your brother have a different mom? Uh, yeah. He's, he's my brother from another mother. Tucker loves his brother, Cameron, and he loves his dad. But he finds the culture of anger at his father's house confusing and different from the culture of sharing and support at his mom's. For him, having a stepdad has enriched his life, and it's also meant exposure to traditions and people that he would never have met without the coming together of a variety of cultures that can sometimes come from a stepfamily situation. Jackson Medrano, age 14, shared about how his interactions with his stepbrother have enriched his life and contributed to the culture of connection in his home. I have a stepbrother, Avner, uh, at my dad's house, and a younger sister who is two years old now at my mom's house. And how old is Avner? He is 13. Do you two hang out a lot? Yeah, 
when when we're both here, we do hang out a lot. What's that like? I think it's like a normal uh, older brother and younger brother kind of situation where we do hang out a lot. And because we're only one year apart, we have a lot of the same interests. Of course, no conversation about culture, especially when we're discussing the relationships between young folks and their family traditions, can occur out of context of their relationships with their caregivers. While caregiving is not solely relegated to parents and or step-parents, all of those we spoke with for these three episodes are growing up with at least one parent in their life. Having said that, some knew a lot more about their parents' cultures, whereas others knew very little. Even in the same households. Where are your parents from? He was born in Africa, and my mom was born here. And he's like half French. No, he's, he's French, and he's born in Africa. No, so I guess I'm a quarter French, African, and yeah. Where is Papa from? Papa is from Texas. <laughs> what about you? Where is Papa and Mommy from? No. All right, that's But cool. it's not Africa. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. He was born in Africa. Right, Papa? Yeah. Yes, you were. What? That was born. That's, yep. That doesn't make sense. You can hear Adriana, Oliver, and Finley Marion and their dad, Julian, discussing, even debating Julian's origins. But Liam, the eldest, knows more of the full story. Our dad was born in Africa, and when he was 12, he moved to Europe with his family. And my mom was born here in Texas. And so we got like kind of like a mix of two different races. And I would so think like, different cultures, too, because yeah. your dad lived in different places than your mom. So how does that impact your lives? Like, tell me about some of your family traditions or cultural customs or anything. Like, do you celebrate where your parents come from in any way? We do not celebrate where they come from. I mean, we whenever we, we went to Europe to meet our my dad's family, mm-hmm. or to just hang out with them. We went to like this place, their attic, I think. We saw like different like cultural statues or like just art and stuff that's different from how our mom's side looks. Yeah, even like African children. Yeah, what was that like? Different because we saw a bunch of different things and definitely new and interesting. Different cultural influences can be interesting for sure. And they can shape who we are and what we carry from our parents' pasts into our presents. Here's 17-year-old Jaden Starks. From a cultural aspect, I mean, it's definitely been fascinating. And because, I mean, my mom's heritage, like, it's always been like, there has been a lot that like raised me to what I am today. And I guess it kind of got me a bit into a more logical perspective on some things. It was definitely my dad's side that got me a lot more into embracing my creativity, though since uh, my dad's an author and also like he's been writing a lot of his own ideas. What are your parents' heritage, if you don't mind my asking? Well, it's pretty obvious. My dad is African-American and uh, my mom is Irish. Probably a lot of others I'm not exactly aware of. (laughs) Jaden shared that his dad, Adam Starks, PhD, author of Broken Child, Mended Man, has taught him and his siblings a lot about life, love, family, race, and resilience. Jaden said he admires his dad and focuses on the lessons Adam has taught him. Isaiah Starks, age 15, admires their dad too, 
But when asked about his take on his parents and culture, he focused on different elements than his older brother. They definitely came from different cultures. Like for the first few years of my life, my dad had like different disciplinary actions and my mom, because like my mom would put me in a corner and then on my dad's side, when he found me doing something, he would like spank me. So they definitely came from different kinds of parenting. Different kinds of parenting and also parenting different personalities impacts our experiences. And experiences at home can both expose us to the expansive ways of the world and contract us, both push us and protect us. Here's Jaden again. Say my family, for example, they shelter me a fair bit from like how kind of evil the world is, like how evil the world can be sometimes. Looking back, how do you feel about being sheltered? Do you see that as a good thing, a bad thing, a neutral thing? Depends on like the level of shelter. Like you don't want someone like helicoptering you. You don't want to be completely neglected either. It's like a fine line. When it comes to culture and belonging, something else that can be a fine line is the line between appreciation and appropriation. Having those conversations is so critical, especially with young people, because we want to encourage them to seek to understand and learn about other cultures in an effort to broaden their perspectives and connect with others cross-culturally. But sometimes doing that can lead to a desire to borrow from cultures or traditions in ways that aren't honoring. Interestingly, it was a conversation that Jackson Medrano had with his dad about why getting box braids wasn't appropriate for Jackson, who is Dominican and white, but was appropriate for his Black friends, that led to a rich conversation between father and son about the various social and cultural boundaries that exist when it comes to certain aspects. When it comes to culture, there are written and unwritten rules, and yet in some ways culture is dynamic. And the more genuine exposure we cultivate within our communities and relationships, the blurrier those demarcation lines become. Jaden Starks had an interesting, perhaps idealistic, yet nonetheless refreshing perspective. Culture is not meant to be claimed by anyone. It's meant for everyone, not to be taken by everyone. And at the same time, reclaiming, revitalizing, and reimagining culture can be a powerful source of strength. 21-year-old Akemi Blake Marquez has found that, especially as someone with indigenous ancestry, reclaiming her right to culture and community has been pivotal to her self-development, as well as pivotal to feeling like she has a place in this world and a connection to her past. And that's essential because societal oppression has tried to strip that from many marginalized people, but especially Native and Black folks, two racial identities that Akemi holds as a Black, Puerto Rican, Indigenous, and white woman. Being able to represent a wide spread of culture, especially being in the States, it's, it's, a, whole, it's a huge melting pot. Yeah. And I feel like when you are biracial and you are a woman, you are representing what wasn't allowed back then. Like, we didn't have rights as women. We weren't allowed to get married to someone of a different race. If you were biracial... It was very frowned upon, and I am a representation of the things that our ancestors weren't allowed to do. In a piece written by Ojibwe author Cecilia Rose Lapointe, owner of Red Circle Consulting, two-spirit author, poet, and writer, she writes, 
Our existence is resistance. When we heal, when we choose sobriety, when we speak, when we rise, we are resisting. This is how we reclaim what was rightfully ours and build the beauty of our culture back into our lives. So those are Cecilia's words. And I thought of them as Akemi spoke. And I thought of the need for those of us with marginalized identities to honor our identities and to do the things our ancestors weren't allowed to do, as well as practices that connect us with the people and the places we come from. At the same time, I don't know that I personally can only connect with those parts of myself and my history without feeling like I'm severing other aspects of myself. And Akemi seemed to feel similarly. I definitely do like that there is more representation. But of course, there are always going to be people who don't consider people who are biracial Black. And then there are people who do. But a lot of times they don't. And so that makes it hard because it's like to everyone else, they see us as Black. So we do share certain struggles. Of course, we do have colorism. And then, of course, there are privileges of being biracial, especially if you can pass. But still, it's it's definitely something that we need to work more on as realizing that we're all in this together. Well, and then the invisibilization of indigenous people, I think, is a whole other layer. So it's like, how do you connect with that and celebrate that? Do you feel that's an identity that you need to speak to more because it's an identity that people don't talk about as much? Or like, how do you navigate that? Definitely. As I continue to grow in my career, I definitely want to make it more aware, like, for example, people who live in reservations, like water and this food is more expensive. They are also more likely to have mental health issues and dealing with alcoholism and not having the proper resources to get help for that. And even when you are racial with indigenous, it's not even though because of genocide, there is more people who are indigenous mixed. But when you're indigenous and black, you're still not really seen as indigenous. How are you able to continue to see yourself the way you see yourself, even if other people don't perceive you that way? Um, Mostly because my ancestors, like, if it wasn't for them, I would not be here. And all of them, they make part of who I am. And I feel like it wouldn't be right if I denied their existence. How do you connect with your ancestors? Mostly through prayer. Like when I say my prayers, I like to include them for their guidance and just honor and appreciate that they did what they did so that I could be where I am today. Akemi had such a clear and unwavering understanding of the importance of those who went before her, who fought for the rights she and others have today, rights which they did not have. So while it's clear there's still a great deal of injustice, it's also clear that part of the cultural legacy she is committed to keeping alive is that of fighting for justice and for rights. That was something I appreciated about several of the young people we interviewed. They were invested in social causes, and they shared about how they understood the need to stand up for themselves and for others. While they didn't necessarily use this language, they spoke about how oppressions are connected and how we all need to be willing to stand shoulder to shoulder and walk together towards a better future, one that makes space for people to be all of who they are. 
Tia Matheson, mother to the three Matheson kids, Reese, Riley, and Mason, is one of the organizers and creative minds behind the Philly Children's March, which had its visible beginning on January 3, 2015, when almost 100 children, parents, and community members marched along Germantown Avenue in Philadelphia chanting, Black Lives Matter, Love and Justice. Over the last five years, it has grown into the Philly Children's Movement, a collection of children, caregivers, and educators who now organize both in person and online. Here are Reese and Riley speaking with Darylise. You've both marched in the Philly Children's March. Did you do anything with BLM? Did you do any of those marches? Too? Yeah, that that's kind of like what they were for. It would be like to be able to, um, how to include children and to be able to educate them on Black Lives Matter. We would make capes and be like how to be a superhero. We would do toy protests and we would do marches of and when they were there for Black Lives Matter there for like that's that's kind of what it was. It was a bunch of kids marching around and for the Black Lives Matter for the cause of Black Lives Matter and then it stretched beyond that. Wow. It was Black Lives Matter and then it was like empowerment being I'd be able to understand that like you as a kid can help with this even though you you have a voice at even as a kid as a how do you think it's impacted both of you to have a mom that is really into advocacy and empowering kids? Wait, what's advocacy? Advocating? It's like being able to say, like, I can advocate for myself. If someone's being mean to me, I can say, no, you can't do that because that's not right. Right. So how do you think that because mommy is an advocate for herself and for a lot of other people, how do you think that it has? Do you think it's helpful? Do you like it? What do you think about it? It's like helpful. I like it. Um, I think that it's definitely like we're taught to be an upstander for ourselves and for other people. And so I think it's definitely helpful for like, so just to be able to understand that, like, she's like, she tells us a lot, be an upstander, be, it's, it's nice to be able to like have someone who isn't so that we know, like we, we know about things and we're not like, in like Mason knows like we know about things even like as younger people and so as we grow up and like now I'm able to help out with the marches I'm not in the I'm in the marches but like I'm so I'm able to like help other people I think it just makes like me and like my sister and my brother like better people overall being able to help ourselves and other people The legacy of marching for rights is inextricably linked to cultures that stood against oppression, and it's linked to issues of identity and belonging. Jackson Maynard told me that he hopes to one day write a book about race, and he cited one of his cultural heroes as inspiration. I wish everybody, like, listened to Martin Luther King, because it's 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 a difference, because we're the future, and per se, we, we change this world and how, how it acts. I don't know how to put this, but like, we just have to help. We don't need to separate. We have to help. We need to save this world. Here's Jaden again. As Martin Luther King said, I had a dream where, where the kids could walk down, could like judge each other, not from the color of their skin, but from the color of their character or something mm-hmm. similar to that. How would you describe your character, Jaden? i probably put it as committed, a tiny bit stubborn, but passionate and 
consider it. W. Somerset Maughan wrote, the value of culture is its effect on character. It avails nothing unless it ennobles and strengthens that. Its use is for life. Its aim is not beauty, but goodness. So let's use our culture in service of the development of our character. And let's love who we are and where we come from while moving forward to create something new by blending and belonging so that we can all integrate where we come from into who we are. Thank you for listening to this episode of the On Being Biracial podcast. Be sure to check out our previous episode and our next episode of this three-part series and to like, rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to all of this season's interviewees, Jaden, Isaiah, and Susanna Starks, Akemi Blake Marquez, Mason Riley and Reese Matheson, Zoe and Jackson Maynard, Jackson Madrano, Layla Jacobs, Liam, Adriana, Oliver, and Finley Marion, Whitley Alfer, Sam and Zora, and Tucker, whose parents preferred not to share their last names, and all the parents who consented to allowing their children to speak with us. And we invite you to get in touch with us and share your multiracial life experiences. As we mentioned before, we'll be launching more episodes in the near future with voices of a variety of different multiracial experiences. So however you identify, if your story involves multiracial or biracial ancestry, please go to our website, onbeingbiracial.com, and contact us there. A link is also included in the show notes. Yes, we'd love to hear from you, so thank you in advance. Thank you as well to the National Association of Black Journalists, whose support made this limited season possible. And be sure to check out our website, onbeingbiracial.com, to find out more about what you can expect from us moving forward, as well as some of the exciting work we're doing. Speaking of work, each episode of the On Being Biracial podcast is written, reported, and produced in collaboration between Darylise and myself, Malcolm Burnley, with audio editing and assistant production by Paul Kondo. The music you heard was 15th Street by Little Rock, licensing courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you again for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and the previous episode. Be sure to check out the next one. And we hope that you embrace your culture and appreciate all of the factors that made you who you are, while also connecting with the person you're becoming. <laughs>